for that. Um, if you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, um, that would be really great as we continue our study through this gospel, the gospel of Luke. There's three books or four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, Luke is the third gospel. Uh, it's the third book in the New Testament. You'll find it there. It's written as we uh, introduced the series by a man named Luke. He was a doctor. He was a historian. Um, he got firsthand evidence, and, uh, and he put an orderly account, as he told uh, to the particular individual he wrote, Theophilus. He says, I'm putting together an orderly account so you can be assured of the things that I say, that they're true. And so we follow this orderly account, this uh, testimony to Jesus Christ and his life. And, and uh, we're going to continue now. The book takes a subtle shift here. Um, we've, we've kind of been looking at how Christ came into the world and, and the testimony about him from angels and from even his enemies. Um, we saw how he's begun his ministry. And now the, the shift kind of comes into what is it going to look like to follow this Jesus? And this is certainly clear from this text. So I want to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray and, and see what God has for us. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished, finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is true. And there's so much here in this text that we can learn about you and we want to learn about you. So help us to see you. Lord, help us to hear what you have for us. Lord, help us to feel what burdens your heart. God, when all is said and done as we study this text, might we love you more because of what we see, because of what your Spirit teaches us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could kind of give you a real simple way to study the Bible. If you're like, ah, you know, I, I want to read and I want to study, how do I do it? There's two questions that will really help you, any text you get to. And, and it's, it's just a really helpful way, and it certainly is this one. What does this text teach me about God? And write down everything you see. Second question is, what does this teach me about man? And write down. And you're a long way, you've made some progress in learning a lot about what that text says just by writing down those two things. And, uh, and you can certainly get that here. I kind of approach this text that way. 
but then I had to back up the truck and take a few more avenues because there was so much I was, I was getting out of it. And, um, but it's a rich text. And so let's just walk through it. We're told that there's a crowd pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Remember, he, Jesus had come with this message of good news. He said, the king's coming, and, and he's going to have his kingdom. He's got a different agenda. He, he's about his kingdom, and I'm bringing good news. And people were hearing this, and they were pressing in. Remember, because he'd also been healing people. He'd been casting out demons. People heard from all around, wow, there's this guy with this message. It's astonishing. We run into that word. We'll continue to run into it. He comes as one who has authority, so much so that he's talking to sickness and it's taken, taken off. He's talking to demons and they're getting out of town. We got to go see this guy. So we're not surprised. The crowd's pressing in on him. But there's a question right off the bat I had. Is the crowd's pressing in on him to hear the word of God? He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. We'll stop there. They didn't have sound systems back then. It's not like Jesus has some people carrying a sound system, setting it up and saying, okay, can everybody hear okay? That wasn't happening. So a legitimate question would be, as you go through the gospel, how, how could all these crowds hear him? And I think it's a good question. Because some people who look at the text would say, this isn't really true, this is kind of just maybe mythology or it's kind of generalization about Jesus. Not everybody could really hear him. Matter of fact, most could, and it's just, there were a bunch of people there. And, but what's really interesting is I came across a study, and uh, it talked a lot about the area around the Sea of Galilee. Gennesaret is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And, and what the study told me was pretty remarkable, because it affirmed what I've read in other places. It was an experiment in the 1970s by archaeologist B. Cubby Chrysler and professional sound engineer Mark Miles. Chrysler and Miles set up equipment at the cove by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they didn't set a boat out. They didn't have to. There's a big rock sitting out there. So they set equipment out on there, and they measured the sound. And what they found is there, by the Sea of Galilee, there's a natural amphitheater because the, um, the land kind of ascends up. And because of the veils and the different hills there, the acoustics are unbelievable. And I thought, well... Just leave it to Jesus, who spoke and the world showed up, to go to a place in the world to speak where there's a natural amphitheater. Show off. You know. and, but that's what happened. He went to a place. He didn't need a sound system. He created it. And it was a natural amphitheater. What was really interesting, as I read in a study, is they were down there setting up their equipment, and they could kind of hear a car drive by, and uh, it was just kind of in the background. They actually heard, they said, a conversation in the car, which was way, way away from them because of the acoustics and the just natural amphitheater-like uh, setup there. And so the crowds indeed heard him. And as they were pressing in on him, they heard what he was teaching and what he was saying. And then we're told in the text, verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake. Well, the two boats suggest a partnership that verse 7 speaks of, because we're told Peter had partners. And so there's two boats, we're not surprised by that. And they're cleaning their nets indicate that they finished fishing for the night. Now, interesting about these boats, because as I read this, I thought, well, I wonder what those boats are like. I wonder how big they were. And a boat was discovered buried in the silt of a lake after a prolonged drought in modern-day Israel. And they carbon-dated it and believed it to be dated from 120 B.C. to 40 A.D., somewhere in there. 
And they found that the boat at that time, which they believed was probably much like what Jesus was standing in and speaking out of and what fishermen use, was 25 and a half feet long. That's pretty good size. It's probably longer than that row. Four and a half feet deep and about five feet wide. So we're talking a pretty decent-sized boat. And so try to imagine that, probably even more than five feet wide, but try to imagine that kind of boat with that kind of, You're talking pretty deep, okay? And that's about what they were using. And so they, they got their two boats sitting there. They're cleaning their nets, indicating that they're done. They're done fishing for the night. They have no intent of doing anything but cleaning, and they're going home to sleep. Boy, were they in for a surprise. We have, first of all, verse 3, you can see a transition in this story. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Okay, they're cleaning nets over here. Jesus gets in a boat and says, could you kind of put off a little bit? This crowd's kind of getting, kind of running, pushing me into the water. Almost they're pressing in on him. And we, that means literally. So he gets in a boat a little bit. Peter's probably thinking, yeah, I can handle that. That's not a big deal. I'll get you, sure, Jesus, we'll get you away from shore a little bit, and you can keep teaching, and we'll just keep cleaning our nets, minding our own business, so to speak. Well, Jesus finishes speaking to the crowds, but he's not finished speaking, because now he turns his attention to Peter. And you see a big shift in this text, almost like the zoom lens, it comes wide and comes real narrow now, onto Simon in this interaction with Jesus. Now, the first command he gives to Simon is to put out, push away from shore. And it's not a suggestion that Jesus has given to Peter and saying, hey, why don't you push out because oh, maybe we'll catch some more fish. No, this is an assurance. Put out and I got something in store for you, kind of that type of push, push out type thing, put out. Now, Jesus doesn't need to be informed that they were fishing all night. He sees them cleaning the nets. He it's not news to him. So he's not being unsympathetic, like, well, they've been out all night. Joe, that's kind of mean of Jesus. Ask him to go back out there. Uh, no, he knows what's going on. He knows they've been out all night. He sees it. He also knows that Peter knows all the fishing spots. Peter's a master fisherman. He knows when to go. He knows where to go. And if all of you fish a lot, like I think if you went out with Steve long fishing, he'll show you exactly on that lake where to go and where not to go. I know because he's taking me out fishing, okay? Master fisherman in his lake. Peters knows what he's doing. And, um, but he happens to be in the boat with somebody he's never fished with before, um, who's a little different level, uh, you could say, than he is. He uses an interesting word that's not used a lot. We, we kind of would fly by it. It's often used, uh, in ver it's the word master in verse 5. Simon said, Master, we toiled all night and day. In some cases, that word means rabbi. But in other cases, it has, a, 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 I guess, a more of an emphasis on authority. That's the word used here. Uh, the disciples use it, and the only other time we see it in the Gospels is when some lepers use it in Luke 9. It, it's the one who has all authority, oftentimes used of a great teacher whose teaching was considered authoritative. This Greek word would be used, Peter uses it, master. In other words, you're the one who has authority. Little did he know <laughs> what he was saying as the story goes on. Now there's a second command. Let down your nets. Now during the daytime, fish can be seen. The fish can see and they can evade the nets. These newly washed nets 
will have to be washed over again if they put out again into the night. Plus, again, Peter knew all the best spots. He knew the best time of day. It was his profession. I kind of wonder if he, as he did what Jesus said, if he didn't feel a little foolish, like looking at his partners or those who were labored for him and thought, God, I hope they don't think I'm a knucklehead. You know, you kind of wonder what went through his head and all that uh, to try to put yourself in his shoes. Perhaps that was. Well, anyways, they take the weighted nets. They throw the nets out into the water. Soon there's a tug on the net. We try to put yourself in the boat now. Then another one. Then another. All of a sudden, there are a few fish flopping. Can you see him watching the net? Oh, we got a couple. This is great. Whoa, wait. You can see the fish popping, the nets tugging all over. All of a sudden, they're really starting to come. I'm probably looking at each other going, we didn't see this one coming. And, all of a, and it just keeps coming. The fish just keep coming. And, hey, whoa, hey, we need some help over here. Then they're yelling to the boat, pick it up, guys. This net. And then you can just see in your mind as I close my eyes, these guys struggling with the net and trying to get the other boat over here, trying to get some fish in there, and their boat's filled. Now they're starting to sink. Hey, you got to throw some of them fish over. And so you can just see it's scramble time, right? You, you can picture yourself there. There's just stuff popping right now. Fish going, all that kind of stuff. Everyone's trying to get everything under control, get all the fish in the boat without sinking, and they're, and just, they're exerting themselves. There's so much going on in that moment that Jesus decides to go fishing. Peter's calling to his partners. Others are probably talking to each other. And I, I thought, this is a pretty awesome moment because omniscience knew where to fish. Omnipotence said, here's the size of catch we're going to get. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty powerful. That's the Jesus in the boat. The one who knows it all, sees it all, and has the power to affect it. And that's what's on display here. But with all that going on, all the fish and all the work and everything, something happens. A jagged revelation rips through Peter. We see it in the text. Verse 5, he says, Simon answers, Master, we toiled all night and day and took nothing. Understood. I worked. He said, Jesus, you know, you really want us to go out? But he says, at your word, I'll let down my nets. Good for Peter. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled their partners. Again, they're all coming over here. All this is going on. Boats begin to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees. So with all that scrambling, which you can imagine, right? He stops, and he looks at Jesus. I imagine their eyes lock. And something seeks into Peter. Whoa. Now, there's something you don't want to isolate one occasion from another. Remember what happened shortly before this? Remember Simon's, we talked about this last week, Simon's mother-in-law had a fever, remember? Jesus came in and said, get out of here. Fever gone. She gets up. Peter was, Peter's, Peter had that right here in the back of his head. And all of a sudden, he's like, okay, he's got authority over sickness. That's pretty cool. But now Peter's face-to-face with something different. This is a master of a different domain. I mean, he can go in, he can look into the depths of the Galilee Sea and tell the fish, okay, get in these nets. What do you do with that one? And you're in the boat with the one who can do that. Simon somehow realizes this is no ordinary man. This is this is Messiah. I've heard about that, but I didn't understand what I meant, what I understood. He didn't think he understood what he thought he understood when he was explained who Jesus was. He's like, whoa. 
and his jagged revelation cuts through him. Pretty amazing moment. So he reels, wheels around, he looks at Jesus, and it's almost like the murky depths of Peter's heart are dredged to the surface. I mean, if Jesus could see into the depths of the sea, Peter's probably thinking, now my heart's vulnerable. Because he can probably see into the depths of my heart. And in that light, that's a pretty fitting response, isn't it? Away from me, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinner. We're going to read that word. It's the first time it's used in this gospel. We're going to read a lot more. And Jesus doesn't run from the sinner. Instead, he calls him. Be the opposite thing maybe we'd consider. But there's something else that grabs me. Sometimes there's a word in the text that, to me, as I read it, I'm like, this doesn't make sense why that word is there. What am I missing? And I don't think I'm, I'm reaching on this. We're told that Peter fell at Jesus' knees, not his feet. Now think this through for a moment. He's in a deep boat, which is filled with fish, right? If he were to try to fall at Jesus' feet, he'd never get to there because of the fish. The only place he could get to is his knees, which puts Peter face down in what? Fish, which is how Peter felt. Stinky, smelly, sinful. Facing the fish at Jesus' knees, he's away from me. I'm just like one of these fish. I'm smelly, I'm stinky, and I'm sinful. I don't belong in the same boat with you. That's what's going through Peter's mind. The response of all the other witnesses we read who were with him, they were astonished. They were in awe. Verse, <clears throat> verse 8, when Peter saw it, he fell down on Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, <clears throat> I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. That word, it's amazing how many times it keeps popping up in this gospel. Everyone's astonished at Jesus and rightfully so. Might we be the same way? And they're astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And then it specified, oh, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon at this point, don't be afraid. Well, the only reason you'd say don't be afraid is if the person was, I don't know, afraid. So this awe, this, this realization and revelation to, to Simon brought, among other things, some fear. Fear of being in the same boat with someone who could tell the depths of the sea all the fish to jump into a net. A little fear and awe of the person who spoke to his mother-in-law's fever and told it to go. Yeah, that's understandable. Such power Peter was not used to. And so don't be afraid. But not only don't be afraid that you're in the boat with me, you're also going to have a different career. You're not going to be about fish anymore, Peter. You're going to be about catching men, catching women. Hmm. Wonder what he thought of that. What image is going through his mind? Right? His nets, right? Catching. That's what he knows. He's a fisherman. Go out in the water, you throw a net, and you catch fish. Catching men. I wonder if the visual went, it kind of doesn't mind. I mean, people laying in a net. I, what on earth are you talking about? And, uh, and yet that's the call he issues to Peter. Now, as I reflected on this, there's a couple questions that really, I guess I wrestle with, but maybe more just reflected on. What was it really between Peter and Jesus that really challenged whether Peter would follow or not? 
I mean, Jesus' call is, hey, I want you to follow me. And Matthew's account says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so, Peter, I want you to follow me. What is the thing that Peter is going to have to really deal with in order to do that? Because this is not a simple call. This is a call to let down something. And in this case, in Peter's, it's his nets. Now, as I think of Peter and try to put myself, I thought, boy, I certainly would have a tendency to want to hang on to the net because it's stable. I mean, it's just provided all this fish. Peter's business has never been better. This is the biggest catch he's probably ever made, not probably ever made, in his whole career as a fisherman. But when he comes to shore, his career as a fisherman is over. He's got a whole different future. He leaves behind a successful business, a steady income, and a bright future. He leaves behind the biggest catch of his career, this miraculous catch of fish. God's word used to symbolically relate to the promise of catching humans in the net of God's grace. And the tables flip because in that, Simon's the amateur. And Jesus is the master. And he needs to learn from Jesus how to fish in this new career, this new calling. Unconditional following, that's the call. And what Jesus calls Peter to, it strikes me, it's not a tinkering with life as he always knew it. But it's an invitation to a new life that he's never imagined. And isn't that like God? He doesn't just tinker with our life, does he? Sometimes he totally upsets it. Totally says, you got a net there? It's pretty good, nothing wrong with the net, but it's, it's starting to get rope burns in your hand. Let it go, because I got something else for you. He's always doing that in our lives. And he knows when to do it, with who to do it, and how to do it. So Peter's called from the secure and the familiar life to a life far different. The only thing standing between him and the others that are mentioned in the text from following Jesus is this thing called their nets. That which they've anchored their security to, their stability. It's their business. It's their livelihood. Let me define this net as you and I bring this home. A net is anything that inhibits or prohibits our non-negotiated commitment to Jesus Christ. A net is anything that inhibits or prohibits our non-negotiated commitment to follow Christ. Because we too face a decision every day of our life, whether we're going to maintain the status quo or live a life of unconditional discipleship, unconditional followership, if I can use that word. I don't even know if it's a word, but it is now. And notice something. Peter didn't volunteer to let the net down. He said, hey, I'll let my net down. I'll go. No, it wasn't his idea. It wasn't his idea at all. No, he was called to it. Jesus called him to follow And in that, followership is not something we volunteer for. It's what God has called us to. So let me ask an obvious question, then we're going to interact a little bit more. Is there anything in your life that's standing in the way of being a non-negotiated follower of Jesus Christ? Is there anything you're hanging on to too tightly that's hindering you from following Jesus wholeheartedly? If you were on the Sea of Galilee... And the zoom lens looked into your life right now, right here, 
what nets it is that you're hanging on to that Jesus might be calling you to let go of. It might not be your job. I mean, and this, this is a pretty big thing here. It might not be that. A net can be person. It could be a thing. It could be an attitude. It, it could be money. It could be multiple things. Things we hang on too tight that Jesus says you need to let that go to follow what I'm calling you to do. Who I'm calling you to be. These impulses of resistance are pole of the nets that inhibit our progress. The longer we hang on to these nets, the more ensnared we become. Because let's be honest, in a strange way it seems, we can live our faith in Christ as though he exists to follow us instead of us following him. That he exists to satisfy our demands. Boy, what a dangerous distortion that is. Jesus doesn't exist to enlarge your net or my net or satisfy our impulses. He calls us to a life of following. But God is gracious. He sends influences our way that, that cause us and call us to drop those nets. You know what they are. could be a friend. A friend makes a comment or a sermon or devotional. could be a small group. It could be life's reproof. It could be circumstances or it could be examples that God uses in your life and my life to tug at our nets to see if we'll let them go. But look at the assurance Jesus gives Peter. You will be catching men. Again, in Matthew 4, 19, I will make you fishers of men. Peter's to follow, Jesus will make. Peter's to follow, Jesus will bring the fruit. Peter's job, follow. Period. Not complicated, Peter. Follow me. 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 Not, not them. Me. Follow me. Not the crowd. Not, not anyone else. You follow me. That's simple. It's harder to live out, isn't it? It's such a simple call. But boy, do we make it difficult. And this is one of the lessons, I think, here. What Christ calls us away for are not often not sinful and degrading things. He calls us away from everything that stands between us and him. Everything. And some of those things aren't bad things in and of themselves. What is he identifying this morning that you need to let go of? Listen to the Spirit of God. The quietness of your heart. What, what's surfacing from the depths of your heart that you need to let go? That you're hanging on too tightly? I don't know if you've ever seen one of them scanners that can kind of see beneath the skin and stuff, kind of see the bones and stuff in there. And maybe the Holy Spirit, if he was scanning over your hands, maybe there's rope burns. You know what they're from. You're hanging on really tight. God's tugging and there's burns. But you're not willing to let go. What is it that's standing in the way of you following Jesus Christ fully? What's standing in the way of you becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Let me ask it that way. Well, the question you would ask is, what, what does that look like? I mean, this is on the Sea of Galilee. This is Peter's life. What does following Jesus look like in my life? Great question. I got some people who are going to answer it. The testimony of a homemaker who's, find, who's found contentment in following. Here's what she says. I'm learning to do my household chores in a way pleasing to Christ, to keep attitudes and thoughts under his control. I'm seeking to best imitate Jesus the best I can in my home, where only Christ knows my inner endeavors. To let the peace that comes from obedience suffice. 
Where once others would encourage and praise my public efforts to do for Christ, I'm learning to follow privately and to be for Christ. This woman's learning to follow. A man named Rick faced a challenge as he was surrounded by 200 other people in a church listening to a speaker who spoke pointedly about personal purity. At the close of the message, several came forward to commit themselves to a lives of integrity and to moral purity. Rick knew this type of commitment would mean not going over to Vicky's apartment on the weekends. It would mean denying a part of his life that he came to both enjoy and count on. And as he watched others stand, he thought about how convincing his college professor had been in claiming that there are no moral absolutes. He remembered that few in the class had sympathy for anyone who believed there were moral absolutes. But now sitting in the chair, he wondered if he should give up his relationship with Vicky, if maybe there were moral absolutes. Rick never stood. Rick never followed. Mary Ann had a husband who'd been living for several months in the duplicity of an affair. When she found a crumpled note in her husband's jeans, she confronted him about it. Well, he callously admitted it was true and promised it would never happen again, yet in a few weeks that followed, he continued to see this other woman. At a salon, Mary Ann read an article that encouraged couples to be free enough to love beyond the scope of their own marriage, and, and that sometimes an affair was good for a marriage. And as she read this secular advice, she began to wonder, well, maybe that old high school sweetheart is still around that she saw a couple months ago. Even some of Mary Ann's friends told her, hey, just dump the guy and get rid of him. You don't, you don't need to forgive him. He's not worth forgiving. And amid the pain of rejection, betrayal by her husband, she felt torn without and torn within. Yet she knew Christ would want her to honor her promises and offer mercy and offer grace, offer forgiveness toward her husband. It was clear what she would do if she would follow Christ. Greg sat in his usual chair in his small group at the Parker's home. Tonight, as Bob led the study, became clear to Greg from the Proverbs that they were studying that this deal with his new partner was really pushing the envelope of ethics. It was built on unethical premise. And he realized few, if any, would ever even know. He didn't really hear much of what was said that night. He knew how badly his wife wanted new furniture and uh, update the house. And, and, and as he began to think about the needs or the wants of his wife and, talked about, and thought about this new business, he became torn inside. His partner even claimed to be a Christian and thought sometimes Christians need to buck up and be better businessmen. But Greg knew that night in his heart what he would do if he'd follow Christ. Kelly sat in a cafeteria in a high school. In a group, as they ate lunch, they began to be slanderous, gossip, bad-mouthing type conversation. And in Kelly's mind, in her heart, she, she struggled what to do until one of the persons asked, yeah, you saw what they did too, Kelly, right? Kelly knew in that moment as a follower of Jesus Christ, either I'm going to shut up or I could join in. Kelly knew what a follower would do. Would she do it? That faces every one of us every single day, stuff like that, right? Whether we're a follower, whether we'll follow Jesus Christ, whether we'll let go of the nets, whether it be popularity maybe Kelly faced or Greg and the business potential deal he had going, all those different things we face, 
And they beg the question, will we follow? Will we follow Jesus wholeheartedly? Following is simple in the sense that complexity of life is really reduced to that question. Where's Christ on this issue? And I'll follow him. Wherever he is, that's where the follower will be. But each day, as I said, there's things, there's people, that circumstances that test our resolve, challenges the comfortable and the familiar. I was reading through the bulletin this week, and you should too, by the way. Amen, Julie? Yeah, read your bulletin. Um, and I was reminded in there, and I don't mean, I'm not going to put Kevin and Jenna, but I am. I was reading about the missions dinner we're having for them after service next Sunday. Please come for that. But with this text in my mind, the question would, why would they pull up their children? And, and Kevin's got a successful business. Why would he do that and go to Macedonia? That makes no sense, does it? From a secular perspective, it makes no sense. But see, that's what you do when you let down the nets and follow Jesus. That's what that looks like. It might not be Macedonia to you. It might be like Kelly getting up from the cafeteria table, walking away and saying, I'm not going to be a part of that. Because that's not what a follower of Jesus would do. It might be like Greg in the business deal, going to your partner and saying, listen, I can't be a part of this. Because that's what a follower of Jesus would do. It's not what the majority thinks. What would a follower do? And when we look at this text, Simon, a lot of his partners went back to fishing. That was fine. But Jesus called Simon and said, hey, we're going to catch men. I want you to follow me. And he let down his nets. All the success, all the stability that that, that, that um, represented, he, he, he let it down. And he followed. I thought, why would he do that? I mean, why? Why let it all go and follow? And I realized there was another catch in this text I'd missed. And it's pretty easy to miss it. We read this, we all look and say, look at all the fish that were caught. But there's another catch here that's the key to the whole text. And the catch is simply this. The only reason you and I leave behind a stable life, the only reason Peter left behind a stable life, successful business, is because he'd been caught. He'd been caught by grace. That's when you follow. We learn to follow when we're caught by the grace of God. When we come to the cross and find mercy, we're caught. You can't follow if you're not caught. Have you been caught by his grace? Have you heard him say to you deep in the recesses of your heart, I love you, but you're not right with me. You need saving. For by grace you've been saved through faith. God says, I poured out my grace and love and mercy. I call you to myself in a relationship. Have you responded to that call? Don't talk about following until you've been caught by grace. And then once you respond now, it's all about following the one who caught you. Jesus, he's the master fisherman. Fishing for fish, that's nothing in this text. He's, he's not fishing for fish. He's fishing for Peter. And he caught him. And Peter responded. And he followed. That's why people will follow, isn't it? That's why I follow. It's hopefully why you follow, not out of duty, and not because anyone's coercing you. You follow because, well, you've been caught by grace. The love of God compels you. 
Paul said. I couldn't help but think, if we were honest and just kind of lay it on a table right here, you know, we're all a bunch of losers from God's standpoint. We're sinful. We weren't making the cut. But the God of all creation walked down the beach of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ and said, I love you. I want a relationship with you. Follow me. I hope we never get over the honor of that. I hope we never get over the awe that the God of all creation would call us into a relationship, and if that's not enough, said, you know what? I want to use you to catch some people too. Me a sinner? Yeah, I want to use you a sinner to catch other sinners. Because God says, I can do that. And I want to do that. Might we never get over such an honor? Well, I hope earlier in the message that you would have been asking the Spirit of God to say, what do I need to let go of? And I want to add a question before that. Have you been caught? Have you been caught by God's grace? And if you can say, yes, I've responded to Jesus' death and resurrection, and I trusted it wholeheartedly for salvation. If you've done that, the next question is, is there anything in the way of you following Jesus wholeheartedly? Are there any nets you're hanging on to you need to let go? I can't answer you for that, but I want to give you time to do that. And so let's bow in prayer. This is between you and the Lord this time right now. This is just who it is, you and the Lord. Listen, respond to him, and I'll close this up in a few moments. Lord, it would seem to me that there's times we recognize like Simon that we're so unworthy to be not in the same boat but the same room with you. You remind us this morning that that is really true. We're not worthy. But we thank you, Jesus, that you came into our world and saved sinners and that by your blood we are made righteous before you. I pray that every person in this room, young and old alike, would hear you call. Your call to enter into a relationship with you. Might they confess their sin and call upon you, the only one to save them. And Lord, for everyone in this room, Lord, who has trusted you, I pray again it would be everyone. I pray that there would be a real searching of your spirit going on, a real, a real face-to-face with the real issue of those things that really threaten us following you, that rival our devotion to you. Lord, as Peter walked away from that beach, there were a pile of nets laying there. And Lord, I pray that maybe as we leave this place, there would be a bunch of nets laying in this room too. Of things we've let go that rival Again, our devotion to you. Things that hinder our followership. 
they won't be easy. You never said it would be easy to let it go. But God, help us to know that we don't leave our nets for a new career. We leave them for a person. You. Might that be our only aim, following you, loving you, serving you. Give us the simplicity of that focus as we go about this week. Because Lord, I know if we can focus on pleasing you and following you and loving you that everything else will take its rightful place. We'll be living life the way you want us to. Lord, none of this is possible without your power and so we pray all these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.